Thank you, Grady. Just uh, thank you, Jesus, for just a beautiful Sabbath. I am worn out. And I look at my sermon, and I have to tell you that if you looked at my notes, you'd see what a mess it is. It's just a mess. Because I, I, I remembered that we had all of this going today, and I remembered that I probably wouldn't be getting in the pulpit till 25 till, and I tried to make it a devotional, and I just made a hash of it. So how about you bear with me, and I will get through as much of this as possible. But I just remember this, that no matter what happens with this sermon, surely I already preached the greatest sermon to us today. Right? Amen. So, uh, so just, uh, I, I, I feel better. That's, that's my safety net uh, right there. We already had a beautiful sermon today, and I just want to praise God for, uh, for this. So. A friend of mine related to me when he came to pastor what we call an institutional church. In Adventism, we have institutional churches. There's usually large churches that are connected either to a hospital or a college, very large institution. And it means it's usually a wealthy church. This one was. It was attached to a very successful Adventist hospital. So it means that it's wealthy because it has a lot of Adventist professionals, doctors, nurses, techs, lawyers, administrators. They're all members of this church. So we're talking mucho tithe, mucho offering, and also a whole lot of leadership, a ton of leadership. So he, there was so much to work with, and he was so excited, and then he got to know his head elder. His head elder had been there for quite a while, and he was as what we would call a typical head elder. He was devout, he taught, he preached. He was a pillar in the community. In fact, he was a surgeon, very successful. So you're picturing, you know, you're picturing who, we, we've all been in a church that had an elder like that. But he began to hear stories about this head elder. Not only was he devout, not only did he, he know the message to preach and to teach, turns out though, he wasn't well liked, in the hospital at least. Nurses who worked with him, other doctors who worked with him, he served as medical chief of staff. Nobody liked him, you know why? Because he was mean. He was mean. See, I understand that no one is perfect, but for a decade, a decade, this man was held up by this church and shown to the community that this is what a, a Seventh-day Adventist looks like. This is what a, a, a son of the living God represents. But obviously, somebody who truly believed his Bible, yet somehow, I have to tell you, in Galatians, meanness is not a fruit of the Spirit. So last week, we were introduced to this group of people, the ones in Israel in Jesus' day that represented the religious leadership, the professed believers. I called them the what? The Bible believers. They were the Bible students. They have the word, but they have it where? They have it on paper, they have it in their Bibles, they have it uh, in their books. This is how they worship God. They worship God by reading about him. They worship him by taking in information, which is nothing wrong with that. Nothing absolutely wrong with that. But we've been shown, we've been shown that you can believe in the Bible but not necessarily believe in Jesus. And unfortunately, uh, uh, your fruits will show it occasionally. 
They certainly do with this group all through the Gospel of John. You can have the word on paper, you can have it on your tablet, you can have it on the, the tablets of stone, or you can have the word in the flesh, which is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and walked among us. So you had the people who, who treated other people as the thou shall not in other words, treated them according to the letter of the law. And then you have Jesus who treats them according to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is the living word. He is the embodiment of the law. It is the law written in the flesh. It is the law written in the heart. And when he encounters this group of Bible believers, every time that he encounters them, they become angry with him. And they also come up with reasons why the law says that he cannot be the Messiah he is claiming to be. The people that say they know their Bibles the best, the people that say they know the signs of the Messiah the best, condemn him for one reason, that he's willing to love people that they wouldn't and to be able to treat them like it, to be able to give them the kingdom. So this is a saying, this is a statement that they will prove that I will come back to and continue to come back to, is that you have to understand that the people that only have it on the tablet, the people that only have the word on the tablet, encounter the word written upon the heart, the word of God written on the heart, and they recognize him as the devil. So you'll see this pattern emerge. Jesus is going to encounter this group of what I will continue to call the Bible believers all through the Gospel of John. You were just introduced to them last week and the week before, actually. So there are three groups that actually John is concerned with the most, and, and they are always front and center in the gospel that Jesus is continually engaging, okay? There are three groups. They're the disciples themselves, the 12, okay? The ones that he picks personally. They're one group. They're the Bible believers that I was talking about. This is the, this is the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes. Sometimes John will name them that way. They represent the church. They represent these Bible believers. And then the other group, which we haven't quite been introduced yet, and you'll, you'll get them kind of full force by, by chapter nine, is the crowd. They're the people that are standing there observing what's going on. They're listening to the debate between the Bible believers and the word himself. This is who John is concerned with. You know why? Because this is who we represent right here. We're the ones, we're the crowd, we're the ones listening, aren't we? Jesus will debate these Bible believers here as we read it, we're the ones that are witnessing it, right? And we get to decide. We get to decide who the word is, what the word is, and be able to hopefully apply and to move on. So chapter six, as, as we move, chapter six is engaging um, after the feeding of the 5,000, engaging with mostly this group of the Bible believers themselves. Um, and he engaged, he talks mostly in this group, it'll mostly be the disciples themselves and the Bible believers. So that's what I wanna focus on today. What's the difference between these two? What's the difference between the disciples, the ones that Jesus called, the 12, 
that are, that are with him and now following him uh, throughout their ministry and these others, these, these disciples because their relationship um, is, 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 how to put it? it, it it's interesting. There is so much in it. There is so much to it. It's one of the reasons why I'm, ha I'm having trouble uh, moving through this fast because there's just so much here. And we'll look at one of the differences between the two today. Maybe, hopefully, the main difference between the two groups. So I pointed out that two weeks ago that one of the ways that the Gospel of John is different from the others is that the narratives themselves, in other words, the, the events themselves, they take second stage to what happens afterwards. Okay, John gives very few details as far as the healings and the miracles and the signs themselves. He just tells you that they happened. What John is interested in is what happens afterwards, the debate between these two groups. He spends more time on this, so you get much more of Jesus' word. You get much more of his teaching to this group in the Gospel of John. So I'm gonna do something I've never done before. I'm gonna skip the narrative of the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm gonna come back to it next week because I wanna use the feeding of the 5,000 in order to feed our communion next week. Is that okay? So I just want you to be familiar with it just a, just a little bit. Jesus was preaching. There's a huge crowd there. As a matter of fact, for somebody counted them, there were 5,000 men, not including women and children. So there could be a crowd of up to 10 to 15,000 here. And by the way, if you've ever been on the Sea of Galilee, there's plenty of places, right, Bev? There's a whole lot of places where you could see that about 10,000 people could gather in order to listen to them. It's getting towards the end of the day. They've been there since breakfast. The disciples are getting worried that they're the ones that are gonna end up having to throw potluck for these people, and they don't know how they were gonna do it. So remember what Jesus does. He feeds them all with five tortillas, if you will, five pitas and a few fish. He feeds every one of them. We'll get back to that next week, okay? We'll get back to that uh, next week. The feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four gospels, so it makes it a major event, okay? A major event, and I'll use it next week, but for now I wanna skip past, I wanna get past to what happened after. They've been fed, they pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Okay, 12 baskets full of leftovers. But something happens that breaks up the party. Something happens that, that breaks it completely up. Okay, so like I said, the bread of life discourse, what we're about to engage in, it's got 70 verses. It's his own book, okay? And no, I'm not gonna go through every one of them. I'll, I'll, I'll go through as, 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 as best I can, as fast as I can. But there's so many ways to approach this. There's so many ways to unpack it because there's so much uh, richness inside it, if you will, for all believers, okay? And I'm gonna do it by examining these two groups and I wanna look at the background of what might be happening here. And when you look at the background of the Bread of Life sermon, there's only one background you can go to. Okay, when you think of the Bread of Life and giving of a few, of, of 5,000 people at least, okay, from, a, a, from just a little bit. In other words, when you think of a mass feeding of people by a miraculous source, what comes to mind when you think about it? One background should come to mind, and it came to these people's mind immediately. God feeding them the manna in the wilderness. In fact, he did it how often? He did it every day, right? He did it every day. For how long? How long was Israel in the wilderness? 
40 years. So I will tell you that when Jesus does this immediately, that's the background. As ancient Israelites, that's what their, that's, uh, that's where their, where their head goes. That's, that's where their mind goes. That's because that's who their identity is. They remember the stories. They remember Moses saying that God fed them just like this, just like this, out of nowhere, whole bunch of bread, right? Whole bunch of bread out of, out of nowhere. So the disciples then experience something immediately after because the miracle narrative ends in verse 15 with something that happens immediately and Jesus cuts it off. Okay, the celebration is over. The miracle is over after verse 15. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by what? By force and make him what? And make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So I want you to note that after this sign, the Israelites notice something about him. They notice something about this sign and they want something to happen. In fact, they're gonna make it happen. And what is that? They're gonna make him what? <laughs> what the heck happened? They were ready to stone him. Last chapter, right? For simply healing on the Sabbath. What in the world happened? Now they wanna make him what? Now they wanna make him king because there's something about this sign. There is information here in the background of this sign and it has to do with the manna. It has to do with the exodus, if you will, and the manna in the wilderness. The disciples, though, they, they, uh, one thing that John leaves out that the, other, that the other gospels leave in is that you remember if you read the other gospels, Jesus makes them get into the boat. He's not going to allow them to participate in this. By the way, would they? From what we know about the disciples, uh, I'm assuming that you've been at prayer meeting. Prayer meeting people, what we know about the disciples and what they wanted in a king, what they wanted in a Messiah, you think they would participate in this? Jesus cuts it off. He puts them in the boat. He forces them in the boat. Okay? So now they're in the boat. It's, it's, it's getting dark. They wait. But since it, is, since it is getting dark, they take off without him. And then the narrative changes anew. There's something, a new narrative that goes from the feeding of the 5,000 to this story here. The sea became rough and strong wind was blowing and when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, do not what? Do not be afraid, I'm sorry. Then they wanted to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. They were going across the Sea of Galilee. They go through this storm. He's telling his disciples something in this. Because again, the background for them immediately goes back to the Exodus. It immediately goes back to the manna in the wilderness, if you will. They have just witnessed their own version of it. So now he's getting them to put more of the formula together. He's giving these Israelite men more of a background to understand what happened in the Hebrew scriptures and how it's being fulfilled in front of them. They get something, of course, that the Bible believers don't. This narrative right here only happens for who? It only happens for the disciples because they're in the boat, right? This doesn't happen anywhere else. You and I get to hear about it because John decided to include it, to write it down. Remember, who's John concerned about in his writing of his gospel? It's us. 
It's you and me. So the information or the background that Jesus wanted to give the disciples, he wants to give us. Our problem is, is that we don't necessarily have the same background. We're not ancient Israelites. We're not living in Israel in the first century. Our mind doesn't automatically go to whatever Hebrew scripture or history, if you will, that will bring this identity about for us. So I just wanted to, you know, spend as much time as we could so that we could get into that identity. Everything that we know about the Exodus, everything we know about what God did through Moses for Israel so many years ago. So he's giving the disciples a different perspective on the feeding of the 5,000 and actually on his entire ministry up until now because he's using their legacy and their understanding of the Father in the Exodus. What is their understanding of God in the Exodus itself? He does so by using three illustrations in this little short narrative right here, three illustrations. The first two are the storm itself and the walking on the water to greet them. Psalm 77 reads this. It describes the Exodus as God in complete control of a stormy sea. In Psalm 76, verse 16 says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. They, the very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. The arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your, li your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And then listen to this verse right here. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isn't that a great way to describe what Jesus just did? The power of nature was, was at work. Jesus comes walking with footprints unseen, the psalmist says. Footprints unseen. Do you think he left footprints in the water? No. Didn't have to. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses, by the hand of Aaron. So God's path through these terrifying waters on unseen footprints, this is the way that the psalmist sees the Exodus. And if you think about it, it's a great way to describe the Exodus. The, uh, to describe the wilderness as, as a wind-blown sea, okay? Because it's just as chaotic as that. It, it, it offers no life as far as that. The wilderness, the desert, gives no more life than, than a wind-blown sea can. It's chaos. And here comes God walking in unseen footprints, leading Moses and the people through the wilderness, so there's a fulfillment here revealed in God's word to his people. It's, it's, it's been in the word to God's people from 400 to 6,000 years before this night. Think the disciples could put two and two together? You think they already have? If not, he has one more illustration. One more illustration by the one thing that he said. And what was, what was the one thing that he said? But he said to them, What? It is I, do not be afraid. Now this is just an introduction to these two little Greek words because Jesus uses them constantly in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, if you want to join us in prayer meeting, we're not quite there yet of the best ways that he uses these two little words. But these two little Greek words, ego, me," okay, translated here as it is I, really literally means I am. 
That's what ego eimi means. I am. See, but we've got English translators translating it now, and it makes more sense to say it's me, it is I. But actually, for those disciples, for those ancient Israelites who are seeing already the parallels to the Exodus, it makes a whole lot more sense to translate it as I am. Because I am is directed, uh, re- uh, directly related to the Exodus, is it not? Grady just read that for us. Literally, it's God's name. Literally, God doesn't have a name. It's him. He exists. I am. Jesus literally says that to the disciples as he calms the sea and as he walks through the wilderness of the Exodus, if you will. So one of the unique elements in John's gospel, Jesus' repeated use of this formula. You'll hear him say this. And this formula, by the way, is only ever applied to Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures. It's only ever applied. That I am is never applied to anyone or anything else in the Hebrew scriptures. It is only applied to the ineffable name of God. And Jesus is literally saying what? I am. Say, it's me. I am. It's an emphatic formula, they call it, and it's always in the mouth of Jesus. So much to be said about the I am statements. There's a ton to be said about the I am statements, but I want to start here. Okay, I want to start where we were introduced to it. It's, it's how God introduced himself to, to Moses the very first time. So if we look at Exodus 3, 6, he said further, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses then what? He he hides his face, okay? I'm I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am. He tells Moses who he is. I'm the God of your father. But you have to remember, Moses has been in captivity for 400 years, as all Israel is. Moses spent uh, the, the, the best years of his life as a prince of Egypt, The question I always ask, does anybody in Israel remember their father Abraham anymore? Because it doesn't comfort Moses here, does it? It doesn't comfort Moses for him to say, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the son of Jacob. I can speculate a little bit of why it doesn't comfort, and this is just my speculation. Why doesn't it comfort this ex-prince of Egypt that God says that he's a God of the descendants of these people? It's because the descendants of these people have been oppressed for 400 years. Moses wonders, who the heck is this? Where is this God? You're not very impressive. Because when he says, I am, Moses does what? He's afraid. He was even afraid to what? To look at him. He's afraid even to look at him. So, what Moses has been trained to do, and to me this is the, the uh, legacy or this is the identity or the background behind Jesus' I am statement. It's behind the I am statement. What Moses has been trained to do when he's afraid is to do or at least try what we all try to do when we are afraid. What's the number one reason of why we're afraid of anything? Is because we are not in control. Humans are only at ease when we are what? When we are in control. When we get out of control, we begin to fear. 
So our instinct is that once we are know that we are out of control, our instinct is to what? Is to gain control. And that's what Moses is going to do here. He's going to use his instinct. He has an instinct to be able to gain control here. And I believe he confidently tries it. I really do. He, I, don't, I don't think there was any timidity about this. I think he just stepped up and gave it his best shot. Because he, he said this, according to our scripture reading, Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name, what shall I say to them? He asked God what? What's your name? See, Moses worshiped the gods in Egypt, and they all had one thing in common. You know what it was? They all had names so that they could be identified. And the reason that they all had names was because some human created it and named it. You with me? So do you see what Moses is trying to do? He's trying to get control over this. Because he's done it with all of his Egyptian gods. Moses was trained as son of Pharaoh. Moses was trained, or as future Pharaoh, if you will, as a prince of Egypt. He was trained as a priest. He knew how to get control over these human gods, if you will. Moses may have even had a god or two up there in the Egyptian pantheon that he made and he named. And if you make it and you name it, who's in control? You are. A priest of Egypt would get a hold of this handmade God, shape it, form it, create it, and then in the defiance of a rebellious worshiper, he would name it. You give it its name, you're the creator now. You are in control. Do you see what Moses is trying to do when he asks Yahweh his name? Moses is scared, and he's trying to get control again. He's frightened. Because this is out of control. He doesn't know what to do. And he wants to get out of being asked what he wants. Because most, God just didn't show up and say, I'm the God of your fathers. He showed up and said, I'm the God of your fathers. I want to go get my kids. You're going to go get them. And is Moses real thrilled about that? No. The second he hears it, he does everything he can to what? To get out of it. Moses can't see this going anywhere. This is going to end bad. Why? Because this God doesn't seem to have what it takes. This God doesn't seem to be able to take on Pharaoh. He doesn't even have a name. Note what God did, though, with Moses. Bear with me this. What God did. God took Moses into his confidence and his care, didn't he? He's revealed himself to Moses as he has done no other to no other to date, not even to Abraham. He's admitted to Moses things that no other human God would ever, ever admit. Do you think a human God would ever admit that he has concern for these puny little humans, these descendants of Abraham? Do you think any other human God would ever admit that? Can you picture Ra doing that? He has empathy. I've heard the cries of my children and I have come down. Moses said, there's no God that would do that. This isn't gonna work. 
Pharaoh knows one language and one language alone. By the way, Pharaoh is a God himself. He's willing to make himself lowly to save these pitiful, forgotten, long lost, oppressed children of Abraham. And to prove it, he selected a human intercessor, a human partner to carry this out. The reason he selects Moses to do it, because if he comes off of Sinai with all of his power, Israel's not going to know who he is. So he selects a human partner to take the fear away that humans have of God's. To show Israel they have no reason to fear this God. It's the difference between hearing a voice boom from the mountain and the word of God in the mouth of another human being or living out the word in another human being. The way that God decides, decided that he has empathy and he's going to live out that empathy for his children is he's going to take one of those children and give him the empathy to do so for him. So God's answer to this power play that Moses tries to do by trying to get a hold of him by knowing his name, this, this mighty prince of Egypt, this priest of Egypt, he says, he says literally to him, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. He says, look, if they try to play with you the way that you just tried to play with me, you can tell them I don't play those games. Those puny human gods who think they are powerful, they play those games with their little people. They play those games with their priests. I don't play those games. You can tell them that he just is. You can tell them that I am. See, God will show Moses his power, his divinity. Snake to a, he turns a, his staff into a snake. He makes his hand leprous and, and, and heals it again. He tells him the first sign that he will do when he gets him there is that he will turn the Nile to blood. By the way, number two God in the Egyptian pantheon next to the sun is the Nile. God goes after number two, the first time, the first, the first shot out of the gate. He's going to turn their river God into blood, make it absolutely useless. Moses will eventually talk himself in and out of this, accepting this divine human partnership, because I think he realizes something. I think what he realizes is all this power that he has and I sat here questioning him, I sat here defying him and I even tried to control him and guess what? I walked down the mountain, still what? Still breathing because if you try that with Ra, you try that with one of those Egyptian gods, what do you think is gonna happen to a lowly, pitiful human who would question one of those gods? So Moses' witness is, when he gets there, he's able just to tell them, I am, I stood in the presence of the living God, I defied him, I tried to control him, and I'm still here talking to you. This becomes the sign. The sign that Moses is even still alive is how Israel should begin to relate to him. This is the witness. This is the something else 
to this God that none of the other gods have. This is the something else that Moses has that nobody else seems to have. See, the disciples now have this something else. He's now been the I am to them, okay? He's now been the I am to them what Moses was to their fathers. He's revealed himself, I am, in this storm. They'll hear it again and again in Jesus' words. I am will come to express Jesus' divinity, always. They express the fathers in the, just the way that it expressed the fathers in the Exodus. They're expressions of what he has to offer. The future salvation promised by Yahweh in the Exodus is fulfilled in the present in Jesus. I am the light of the world, he'll say. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And in this chapter right here, he will tell them, I am the bread of life. So they have this experience when they land on the other side of the lake the morning after the feeding of the 5,000. that no one else has. And when they get to the other side, it's this other group that they encounter that doesn't have this experience. So Jesus and the disciples, they get to the other side of the lake. The crowd on the opposite shore, they searched for him with some help from the people who sailed from Tiberias. They've crossed the lake. They found Jesus in the synagogue. This is what's interesting, is that the bread of life sermon, I always thought, still took place out in the wilderness. They're out there still debating it. Actually, no. When he went across the lake to Capernaum, he went right to the synagogue. So to me, this is perfect. <laughs> An Adventist should love this. The whole bread of life sermon is happening during Sabbath school. He's teaching Sabbath school. The Bread of Life sermon is a Sabbath school class. Is that not cool? But what's funny is that the students in the Sabbath school class are a lot like us. A lot like us. But this is happening here. So it says when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus says immediately, just like with Nicodemus, your search is not spiritual. How many times has this happened in Sabbath school? Have you ever had a teacher that would, that would cut you off that way? They, they want small talk. They want to talk about signs just like Nicodemus did. Jesus cuts them right off. Look, look, I know why you're here. You're not on a spiritual journey. You're here because you ate and you're hungry again. By the way, he didn't say there's anything wrong with that. He said, just don't disguise it as something else, right? Their search isn't spiritual. They aren't interested in the meaning. They just want to see more miracles. They specifically just want more bread. They want to see more bread. But it's interesting. There's a reason that they want to see more bread. And this is the reason here. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, that is something that they've made this step. They've made this leap. Remember in the Gospel of John, the unbeliever takes three phases to become a believer. First, they believe that Jesus is Elijah. Then they believe that he is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then, hopefully, maybe, they'll then admit that he is the Messiah. They've made step two here. That's amazing, with just one sign. And it's because of this particular sign. 
It's because of this particular sign. See, they know something's up. The crowd is beginning to speculate after the feeding. Why would they begin to speculate this? Well, real quick, that, that would be the background where God miraculously, miraculously feeds a whole bunch of people. It's the manna in the wilderness. That background of Exodus 16 and Numbers 11 come up. So real fast, the manna first fell on the 15th day of the second month. Passover falls on the 15th day of the first month. Actually, the 15th day of the second month actually functioned as a backup Passover. It was for anybody who was unclean during Passover. Remember, he, Moses gave another date a month later, just a month later where you could do it if you were unclean during the first one. So the arrival of the manna over time becomes associated with the Passover. Passover and manna become... Uh, uh, linked together, if you will, because it occurs only a month later. So all the events of the Exodus now are beginning to become tied together, if you will, all here in John chapter six. The manna, the I am, the Exodus, Passover, it's all coming together. Jesus is putting them all together for us. According to Joshua 5, the manna ends the day after Passover, just before Israel enters the promised land. So the tradition arises, according to the Midrash, according to the Mishnah, that the Messiah would come on a Passover and that along with his coming, he would allow the manna to begin to fall again. So when Jesus, um, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, Verse four in chapter six said, the Passover was near. This is why the crowd is speculating. Could this be the prophet that Moses had promised? Is this him? Remember we kind of looked at this verse last week. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. They're expecting much greater things now. He's done something that only Moses would do. It's near Passover. Passover's about here. If he is the Messiah, he'll bring the manna. They're waiting for more bread because they want to see the manna. They expect the manna to fall any second now. So they said to him, they said, what are you going to give us so that we may see and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They are laying out the sign that they claim they want to see. You just do this and I'll what? And I'll believe. You just do this and I'll believe. Is that what Jesus is gonna give them though? No. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses it was not Moses, I, I, didn't, I guess I didn't put it up there, I'm sorry, um, you'll have to read this one with me. It's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They're looking for a cosmic sign that verifies Jesus as the Messiah, and he answers simply that he is that cosmic sign. And that's what they can't put their minds around. This is what they refuse to believe. See, I'd rather ask for the manna because then it's on my terms. Remember, verse 14 is just before verse 15 when these same people tried to take him by force and make him king. Bring the manna. Don't make me believe something else that I don't want to believe. 
See, once Jesus, in Luke chapter 17, it says that once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Every time he, he, asked, he was asked where the kingdom of God was, he would say, it's among you. It's right here. First words of his ministry, according to the gospel of Mark. Repent, be baptized, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's him. He's the sign. So if they would only believe in him, then they'd receive all the evidence they need. They think they do. They say this. They say, sir, give us the bread always. He sounds like the woman at the well. They do. They sound like the woman at the well. Remember, she, she thought he was talking about the water in the well when he said, you know, if, I'll give you uh, water up into everlasting life. They're doing the same thing. He said, I'll give you bread forever. They said, sir, give us this bread, okay? They feed us the way Moses did. They still don't understand. The offer is beginning to sound good, though. I'm encouraged by the crowd today. Not the crowd. I'm encouraged by the Bible believers today, if you will. Jesus just makes clear. The true bread from heaven, none other than himself. Beginning in verse 35, all the statements that he makes are first person singular. He attributes them directly to himself. In verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be what? Will never be thirsty. It's him, he says. The Jews begin to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. We don't want this. Okay? I don't, you, you can't be the bread that came down from heaven. This isn't what we want. But again, he is the bread. Literally, he says, I'm the bread of what? I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate. And they died. But the one who eats this bread will what? Will live forever. See, the ultimate issue here is clearly a personal relationship. What God offered Moses, Jesus is offering Israel. Remember the first time God offered it to all of Israel, only Moses accepted. The rest refused. Jesus brings it back to him. Says, what you refused at Sinai, I and the Father want to give it to you today. The ultimate second chance. And just as bread nourishes us every day, he says, you know what? I can nourish you every day too. And I will nourish you every day, now and in the last day. Because in verse 40 it says, this indeed is the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life. And I'll raise him up when? I'll raise him up on the last day. Manna can't do that for you. Manna couldn't do that for anybody. So he's saying our faith can be as constant as our food. The intimacy that Jesus offers is so much more than a Bible study. After encountering Jesus like this, none of us should be satisfied with a mere Bible study anymore. The Bible believers think they want manna and again, the experience of someone else on paper is what they want. 
So I'll close with this. Why wouldn't Jesus just do it? Could he? Could he bring the manna now? Sure he did. Maybe he doesn't have to do it for 40 years. Maybe he just does it a couple of times to get these people to believe, to manipulate these people into believing, right? It's all good in the end, isn't it? The ends justify the means, but that's not what Jesus is in it for. I want you to consider this about the manna and the Exodus and Moses himself, okay? In the discourse that Moses tells in the raise up a prophet like me, he looks at the difference between them and him. And there's a verse after he says that he'll raise up a prophet like me. He says to Israel, this is what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, if I hear the voice of the Lord my God anymore, or ever again see this great fire, I will what? I will die. See, Passover and the manna, the prophet was raised up on Passover and then brings the manna. After feeding the 5,000, this is what they're expecting. Any minute is for the manna to happen. But the difference between Moses' experience with manna and their experience with manna is that Moses doesn't fear God. They do. And did the bringing of manna do anything to alleviate Israel's fear? No. They were constantly in what? Constantly in fear. Because they refused that relationship that Moses had. Moses isn't afraid anymore. I'll take the manna. I can do without it. I can go without water. Or I'll take water from a rock. Moses is good. He's not afraid of him anymore. And he tried to tell them that, that they didn't have to be afraid of him. So when the sign comes uh, in, in, in chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, what sign are you going to give us? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. All he has to do is just bring the manna, and of course they're going to believe is what they said. But again, what did the manna in the wilderness do for their father's belief? Did they believe in God when he brought the manna? No, no. And forgive me if I, if I want to get harsh. As a matter of fact, they got sick of it. And they told Moses to tell God that he could take the manna and hang it in his ear is exactly what they said, right? We want something else to eat. Why? Because God's power is still coming from a source that they don't know and they're still afraid of him. The manna is coming from where? It's coming from heaven. It terrifies them. Why? Because they're not controlling it. Moses gets it, Moses understands it because Moses has been walking and talking with him. He gets this God. He knows that the manna is falling because, they, because he loves them. Israel doesn't know and they refuse to know. As a matter of fact, they'll take nature's uh, sign over God, Moses' words to them any day. So tell me if you, if you believe this. See, God's power is coming from a source that they don't know, that they don't, will not encounter themselves. They're only getting the results. Their fathers were scared, and scared children will not worship God even when he provides everything they need.
no matter how well we provide for our children, if we give them a reason to fear us, then we won't be honored, as the commandment says, will we? They don't know what Moses knows. And so that other group, the Bible believers, they don't know what the disciples know. Because what the disciples, what happened was at the end of this beautiful sermon, at the end of this beautiful uh, discourse on the bread of life, it was because of many of his disciples, they turned their back and they no longer can what? They will no longer go about with him. They walk away. They thought they'd be able to worship if he continues to do this for us, just like Israel thought that they would worship because God brought the manna and that turns sour because they don't believe that this God loves them. They do not trust this God who brings this power from on high. And believe me, this comes from 400 years of being oppressed by human Egyptian gods that do nothing, do nothing for them except oppress them and endanger them and hurt them. Jesus calls them on their belief in the scriptures and their teaching about God when he says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is really difficult. And Jesus says to them, being aware that his disciples were complaining about this, does this offend you? Then what, were you, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's saying, you're not ready. I'm not ready showing you. I'm not ready, to, uh, I'm not done revealing the Father to me. You're not ready to see this power. You're not ready to see the manna fall again. He doesn't want the same mistake made. He's not going to truly reveal God's power until they and the world knows that, they, that the Father loves them. See, Jesus said, you're not ready. You think you're ready to see me ascend to where I was before? Because not even the disciples know quite yet. But the good news about the disciples is because of what Jesus revealed to them about the I am on the sea. In other words, he brings the power of the I am. He brings the power of the Father at Sinai and he brings everything that Jesus had done up until that point. The love of the guests the, his, his love for the guests at the wedding, his love for the Samaritan woman, his love for Nicodemus, his love for the man paralyzed for 38 years, and his love for the disciples by coming to them to calm this storm so that they no longer had to be a what? Afraid. That one experience of the I am gets this out of them. Jesus asked the 12, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Every time I read those words, it just breaks my heart. Jesus' best friends, and he has to ask them, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Do you want to go away too? And then what does Peter say? Lord, where would we go? To whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the one, the Holy One of God. One personal encounter with the I am and at least these guys are gonna hang around just a bit more. The Bible believers, they're done. They're done.
So I pointed out last week, the Bible believers get angry for one reason with Jesus, and that is because he's willing to love those who they have deemed unlovable. And unfortunately, they're using the law to unlove them because it appears that the law is not very loving, which it is not. The law does nothing but what? The law does nothing but condemn. Something hit me that I couldn't point out last week, and I will, I will end. Something hit me that, point out, that I couldn't point out last week is that, did you ever think that maybe one of the reasons why Moses broke the tablets when he came down the mountain of the golden calf, it'd be, it's because the tablets will do them absolutely no good now? Once they built the golden calf, they broke the first three commandments, didn't they? So the law does them how much good? None. So he smashes them. And he may have smashed him, hopefully, to keep just some of the condemnation that they were experiencing. The law can't do anything for him. So he loves those who the Bible seems to condemn as unlovable. Loving your neighbor gets to be a whole lot more complicated, and it's a whole lot easier to let the law condemn them. Yet Jesus says, hold on now. And he takes us by the hand, and he says, see where you've never seen before. Walk where you have not walked before. Come forth. Straighten up. Stretch out your hand. So we get to experience as believers what Israel could have experienced had they just come up the mountain. Jesus makes sure that we don't have to experience God in any lesser form. He is our I am. And there's nothing less about it. Thank you for hanging in there with me. We plowed through it. We got all the way through it. So thank you for hanging in there with me. Like I said, what we'll do is we'll go back to the beginning next week. And then we'll look at the actual feeding of the 5,000 itself. Because I wanted to use that for our communion blessing, if you will. Barbie, we're going to miss you. Happy Sabbath, everybody at home. We miss and love you too.